I went to see Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight the other day. And I don't think I'll be spoiling the film for you to tell you that there's an extended description of fellatio performed <laughs> by a white man on Samuel Jackson. <laughs> it's just a description, but in Tarantino's dialogue, of course, it's quite vivid. And uh, I can't get the words out of my mind as I look down at this big fuzzy microphone. Warm <laughs> black dingus. Jazz. Oh, God. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's just, you have to have seen the film to know just how um, explosive those words are at the moment they're said. But there we go. (sighs) Thank you for sharing. Hey, my pleasure. So I'm going to suck today. I'm just giving you a heads up. It's not like one of those days where I'm not trying. It's just that I'm going to suck, okay? Because there are days when I don't try, you know? <laughs> but this is this is a day that even if I try, I'm going to suck. So just, just know that you're going to be carrying more of the weight today. Good to know. And there's some thumping coming through the mic? I don't know. Yes, what... there's thumping. Get over it. There, there'll be thumping. Stop. I'm moving things around. You're just going to have to cope. All right. Okay. I'm doing my Tom Jones impression. It involves a lot of hip action so okay well welcome to jazz bastard podcast 89 welcome and uh you know who we Warm are so we're not gonna say black dingus <laughs> oh, God. it's it's gonna be a long road people just brace yourselves mike has offered four additional selections from recent 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 purchases and we're just kind of going to go through them. There's not a lot of connection there. There are a couple albums featuring tenor players, and there's one featuring a piano player and one featuring a bassist. So, and they're kind of I don't know from different times. A couple from the '70s and a couple from other eras. So, can you can you just tell me if you're going to do the up talk for the whole podcast? Because if you are, I'm just going to stab myself in the ear now. The up talk. I don't. Am I. And he picked four selections from. <laughs> Can you stop that? I get enough of that in my classes. Cut okay. it out. Okay. <laughs> four selections. You're going to love The Quiet Storm. That's right. We're going to end on a down note every sentence. That's what I'm saying. You so, could you tell note. us? Could you tell us about these four selections you you picked? Nice job. Well done there. Uh, So I think, uh, I don't even know if this is chronological. The first was uh, Johnny Griffin's The Return of the Griffin. I believe it was originally recorded in 1978, which is kind of late for Johnny. But hence the title, Return of the Griffin. A, actually recorded the year before, live at Montreux, Ray Bryant's Montreux 77. And that's a solo date. And then, let's see, who comes next? I think Scott Hamilton. This is uh, Radio City. From 1990 on the Concord label, where he's done tons and tons of recordings. You remember, those used to be available on eMusic. You could basically download like the entire Concord catalog for a while. And there were some good players on there. He was one of them. And the other is from 1999, and that's Avishai Cohen's Devotion. 
um, which has actually some suspects on it from other things we've recently listened to, namely Jason Lindner on piano. He was uh, the pianist for Bowie's Black Star, I believe. So, mm, okay. Yeah. Neither here nor there. All right. You ready to start carrying the weight, big fella? Okay. Yeah. I'm going to lift with my legs, so we should be fine. <laughs> there you go. Sounds fine. So where do you want to start? Oh, uh, what the hell? Let's just uh, start with Ray Bryant. He's okay. a, a figure that he did he like do a some session with Miles Davis maybe did I feel he? like really? I feel like you know he was known mainly I feel like the albums I have by him are, are this you you got to me and Alone with the Blues another solo recital focusing as you might expect from the title on blues but I feel like he appeared somewhere on one of Miles's early recordings. I, I don't know. I, I don't God, know him very well. I'm, I'm looking it up, and he appeared on a prestige date back in 1955. Ah, Holy cats. Okay. Wow. I didn't realize he went that far back. I, I did not. Yeah, he he's played. Shows you how much research I've done this week. He's played with Blakey, Davis, Gillespie, Golson, and Hawkins. Lee Morgan, Oliver Nelson, Max Roach, Rollins. So he played with all those guys back in the 60s and in the 50s. I didn't realize he, his uh, discography went that far back. Wow. Okay. He's uh, originally, I think he was the accompanist for uh, Betty Carter. That's kind of where he got his start. But obviously, that's not where he ends up. Yeah. And this solo recital, he's playing in a tradition that we don't hear so much in, in, in modernist jazz, which is, I, I kind of say, the boogie-woogie to yeah. some degree, tradition, right? Lots of left-hand rolling action going on there. Yeah, a little surprising, actually. I, I didn't quite know what to expect, you know, because Montreux, isn't that sort of an, I mean, I know it's a, a jazz festival, but doesn't it have sort of avant-garde or cutting-edge overtones? Because when I think of the people who've played there, I always think of people who are sort of on the edge or doing new stuff. Is that just my misapprehension? or I don't know that I have that strong a sense about it. I I have this ton and ton of stuff with Miles Davis there, maybe. Yeah, and obviously the playing there. Okay, so they obviously accepted the electrical stuff. They they weren't adverse to that. So I, I guess that's kind of yeah. I, I've got these that two thousand discs by Miles and, and Montreux. So at some point they certainly uh, became a festival that was willing to embrace electric jazz and progressive jazz. At this time in seventy seven. Trying to think who else was bringing up this idea of, of oh I guess Hamilton. He, we're not listening to a recording by Hamilton from the seventies, but that's when he starts playing and he is striking to many people because he's playing in the swing style during the fusion era. But obviously here's Ray Bryant who also is playing in an older style yeah. during the height of fusion. And it's just a really pleasant rollicking album. I, I don't know that just like Alone with the Blues, it, it's very very likable. I guess is what I call it. It, it just it kind yeah. of the style is just immediately accessible and enjoyable. It doesn't seem superficial or trivial. At the same time, it's not knocking your socks off. It's not like Art Tatum or something by himself, just kind of no. overwhelming you with pyrotechnics. 
Uh, I think uh, for me, the, the number, so it's, 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 it's not, it's an interesting list of songs. It's an interesting choice in programming because there, there is stuff here that a festival audience would recognize, right? He opens with Take the A Train and then he goes into Georgia on my mind. And there's a few other things here. There's more Ellington, Satin Doll. But for me, the more interesting numbers are any closest with things ain't what they used to be. So definitely to me, that feels like reaching out to the audience in a way. But for me, the more interesting numbers are the gospel-tinged numbers. One that he plays called If I Could Just Make It to Heaven, which he introduces as a kind of gospel number he learned, I think, from his mother. And then I really like his rendition of Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child. He can get a little florid, but the fingerings that he gets up to on those numbers feel a little more engaged and impassioned as opposed to just merely decorative, which I kind of liked. It is, you're right, it's a very genial, pleasant date. Those were the numbers that to me felt like there was just a touch more engagement, just a touch more power than there were in the other numbers, which were idiosyncratic, uh, it's probably too strong a word, personal renditions of things from the canon, right? He plays Django, a John Lewis tune, and of course, St. Louis Blues, which is always yeah. a workout for people on piano. So he, he, he gets up to some canonical stuff here, but it's in the more personal numbers that I think it feels like there's just a little bit more engagement, a little more pulse. Not that the rest of the date is, is listless by any stretch. It just feels like the stakes are a wee bit higher in those numbers. But yeah, very just a really enjoyable, I thought, really enjoyable date. He seems like a really nice guy. He's got this sort of mellow, calm way of introducing his songs. I, I like it. I don't know how uh, I got interested or picked this up. I think I probably just saw it at a library sale. It's an um, original jazz classics recording produced by Norman Grants. And I saw that and I thought, oh, okay, for 50 cents, why not? Sure. Yeah, what, what and I think it's originally on the Pablo. Okay, okay. Table, so. So that's why it's on OJC. Anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of took a flyer on it. And for 50 cents, it's a pretty good buy, if you ask me. But I picked up a couple other things by him uh, after that. So uh, there was enough of interest here to make me kind of want to know a little bit more about him. Because I, I know absolutely nothing about the man. And like I said, when we just started talking and we mentioned that he goes as far back as... Yeah, mid-50s, yeah. Mid-50s. Is, that's kind of shocking to me. And he just recently passed away. And apparently here on a Wikipedia page, he is the uncle to the Eubanks. Mm, so okay. the Eubanks clan. So there you go. So Kevin Eubanks, a guitar player, and who's the trombone? Robin Eubanks, Robin the trombone Eubanks. player. Yeah. I think there's a third one. There's a okay. Dwayne. I don't know what Dwayne does. Trumpeter. So there you go. Hangs out with the Marcellus brothers. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, Bedrock of Soul, right? You feel like there is a kind of, he's not preachy. He's not pushing obnoxiously his engagement with it, but, but you feel like it, it's, it's earnest. It's felt it's, it, it, you know, he's just, a, he's got a lot of sincerity in his playing. It's kind of straightforward. It, it's odd. I was just trying to place, you know, you hear this and I guess I'm a little bit jaundiced after all these years and nothing seems to be all that spectacular. It seems a little odd to me that this would be a featured set at a festival, right? It just doesn't seem like festival music at some level. It seems very intimate and, and not very showy and not all that surprising. You kind of wonder, what's this guy's shtick? And he doesn't seem to have one. It's just he's playing these standards, and as you said, a couple gospel numbers, in a, kind of a boogie-woogie fashion. He, he's, he's fine at it. He's, he's a good player, but, but not an overwhelming one. And it's very enjoyable, and it, it kind of works, again, that emotional sincerity seems to come through it. And he's a tasteful player. But yeah, it's a little, I, I'm just 
trying to imagine this program on, on a festival today, and it would just seem, I think, a little odd. Just not that it's bad. Just it doesn't. I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I kind of yeah. think based on what I've seen recently in piano jazz uh, recitals, it's kind of par for the course in a sense. I mean, it, in some ways, he's kind of ahead of his time in the sense that you give the audience some things they recognize. You start with numbers they know to kind of engage them. Right, right. And then you do some stuff that's personal to you. He plays a blues in the middle in the key of G. Can you tell me if that's a difficult key to play in? It's very straightforward. The only odd thing about it is the piano being a C instrument is more likely to play in a flat key just because if he's playing in G, say an alto saxophone player would be playing in four sharp key E, which is by no means impossible. It's just more often the C instruments are going to be in the in the flats just to kind of balance things out for the instruments that you know, have three more sharps than they do, but but it, it's a pretty straightforward. It's it's not real challenging or anything. Yeah, so. and and that's the longest number here. He he just improvises the title. He calls it blues number six, and it's longer by a minute or two than anything else here. And he sort of slaps that right in the middle, right after the John Lewis composition, and then he gets everyone back on board with a brisk interpretation of Satin Doll. It sort of feels like a kind of cagey programming designed to kind of flatter. Part of what I think, we should actually talk about this at some point, part of what I think happens at jazz concerts, particularly in places where you're not sure of an audience or you're not sure that that it's a, let me start over. When Darcy James Argue brings the Secret Society to some place in a Williamsburg dive in Brooklyn and the 30 people who show up to fill that joint, when he brings his band there, he knows they're on side. Like that's his peeps. And he doesn't need to open with Ellington to get those peeps on his side. Whereas when he comes to, let's say, Lafayette, and he's going to play at the University of, what the hell's the university there? Not Indiana. Purdue. Purdue. He's going to play at Purdue University, right, in a hall that seats 2,000. He's going to play a couple of openers at least to hook the audience in, something they might have heard, right, something they, they might know. And then maybe move into some thornier stuff in the middle and then lollipops again later for uh, folks with things that they might recognize. Because part of, uh, you know, part of the deal with jazz is it's there's this learning curve, right? And it's supposed to be this forbidding, alien, difficult music and only the cognoscenti really know it. So if you're going to program, you program things that, that people are likely to have heard. And then you move into the stuff they may not have heard and you close with stuff they're likely to have heard. You right, know? right, yeah. And he, he kind of follows that to a T here. I mean, it is sort of classical programming in that sense. I just wonder if you need to do that at Montreux. I don't know. Maybe he did in 1977. No clue. Well, I think that just his studio effort, the one that I have, along with the blues, is also very – I just think that he's also just naturally a guy that, that plays an accessible kind of jazz, right? He's right. not – He's not bringing out a lot of obscurities. He's not digging into obscure or strange harmonies. He's not – going off I and mean, at some point we're going to talk about this massive meldow box of solo stuff that he released and it, it couldn't be further apart from right. what what bryant does he is in the pocket absolutely and i think again very very pleasingly i, I like this album i kind of feel like having heard it once or twice going back to it i'm going to enjoy it every time i, I don't know that i'm going to find new secrets in it i don't feel right. like it's an onion you have to keep peeling right it, it's kind of there but it is a likable one and it's I was kind of thinking about the theme here and I feel like in some ways what we got here are three Yahweh's and then one Joker and that three of these guys that we're talking about today have a very distinctive and formed and stable musical personalities yes 
they kind of they am what they am. They're the Popeyes of jazz, and this guy am what he is, and he's he's got an identity, and it's a likable. I like it. I, I don't feel like he's a lacking as an artist or something. But yeah, you listen to him, and it, it it's pretty much straightforward, on the nose playing, very tasteful, uh, very engaging. I like it, but it it's not something that you're going to be unpacking the mysteries of later on. It, it's just kind of there. And this is a very likable session. And I guess my, my point just is that it's not, he's not going out there, he's not going to slam with dexterity, though he is a dexterous player. He's not trying to kind of bowl them over. I just feel like it's he's got no problem kind of bringing what I think of as an intimate club set to this larger stage and just sharing it with people. And it works, it works fine. But yeah, it's not it's not a showy set, I guess is a, is a way of summarizing it. Yeah. So okay. definitely worth a, a look and definitely someone who I imagine I, I have only one other recording by him and it's in a trio setting, which he did. Apparently that was kind of his primary. That's his bread and butter. He did tons of trio dates and, and some solo albums and then some other kinds of settings. My suspicion is everything in his discography is going to be pretty solid. Yeah. You're not going to hear anything where you go, oh, my God, that was a mistake. Right. Yeah. Bar talk or West Side Story right. or West Side Story right. done like Bartok, or, you know, he's not, yeah, he's a guy that just kind of gets the work done, puts on the hard hat, gets there, and, and makes some solid music. All right, well, that was Ray, and let's see, who's, who's up next? Is it is let's it Johnny? Do, uh, let's do Johnny, let's do Johnny. Johnny, be good. Why don't you start by saying stuff about Johnny Griffin? We've never talked about him on the podcast before, and he is, what, would you say he's in the front rank of the second tier of great tenor players, something like that? <laughs> That's right. He's the top of the staircase. It's on the, oh he's my not, gosh. You know, he's not Coltrane. He's not, you know, he's not Rollins. He's like Mobley. You know, he's a player of that stature. Yeah, very different, but yes. right, absolutely. He's, yeah, it makes sense it's to call him a player of the, the very front of the second rank. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I was actually my reaction to this album was to dig out some of the Griffin I already had. I also went online and got one of these super cheap four disc seven album sets of things for like fifteen bucks of some wow. of this other stuff. So I've been digging things like the Kerry Dance, where he plays folk songs. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. And then there's one that uh he, he's doing with an orchestra, one of these ballad features where he's you know up front they've got kind of a band and some strings behind him. And throughout it, Johnny's Johnny, the recordings I I knew him from as a kid were his live recordings with Thelonious Monk, right, from the 50s. And he's with Monk a fairly short time, but he makes a couple of important live albums with Monk on Riverside. And and one of the distinctive moments of those... That's where I know him from, actually. Yeah, yeah. That's where I first became aware of him, yeah. And one thing Monk had loved to do is, in the middle of Griffin's solo, the whole rhythm section would drop out and Griffin would just play a chorus or two acapella just solo and his sense of structure and time is so firm he just goes mows along as if nothing had happened he's not relying on someone else to guide him harmonically or rhythmically he just keeps playing those are probably his best known and best loved recordings i'm going to guess for most people but he's he's known for playing duets with eddie lockjaw davis 
He makes a lot of records with Eddie. I've now got a couple more of those. I, I think I managed to twice buy a double album prestige reissue. Those are always fun because they sound pretty decent. They're fairly cheap. You get a fair amount of music for your buck if you're buying old vinyl. And so I got it once, and then a year or two later, I got it again, and I brought it home and said, you know what, Pat, you've got one of these. Well, which one sounds bad? <laughs> one's a little less scratchy. Yeah, this one's going to go up in the in the room of shame, and hopefully Joyce will never realize. She won't. She It wouldn't matter. It all sounds the same to her anyway. Doobie doobie that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Bubble. And so, and these guys are the tough tenors, right? They are kind of, I, they may be the best known duetting tenors. I mean, obviously, yeah, uh, Dexter Gordon and Wardell Don't you Gray. think he's, don't you think he's head and shoulders above Eddie Lockshaw Davis though? Well, very different. I, Davis, you know, listening to it and I was trying to think about this particular album actually reminded me of a story from our college years. I, this has been a little saying I, I've kept and cherished to my heart for 30 years or more, but some kind of graduation picnic, we were hanging out and this young lady named Tammy, who I think was a year behind us, I cannot think of her last name, but she was laying on this chaise lounge in shorts. <laughs> she said, Pat, Pat, you're looking at my legs, which I probably was. Stop torturing yourself. And Maybe. I just, I, I just, I love that comment so much. I mean, I don't know how many times in the last 30 years I said, Pat, stop torturing yourself. <laughs> and I was thinking of this recording and thought to myself, Mike, stop torturing yourself. You hate 70s bass so much, and yet there's so much Oh, 70s bass. yes. Well, there's that. Yeah. So, so we're talking. This and guy's, it's Ray Drummond, too, who yeah, I really like. But yeah, it's a rubber The band, disease so. is, is rampaging in, in, in this time. And so Griffin's Kirk goes back to the 50s, makes a lot of stuff, as I said, a lot of duet albums. Kind of, I don't know, uh, tough, straightforward, men getting work done albums with Eddie. Eddie, I tend to think of as a more romantic. I, it was The thing with Griffin is he's... Very fast. He's very yes. articulate. He's he thinks on his feet pretty well. He's kind of a horizontal player, not in terms of the lines he's doing, but in terms of just there's kind of a, a a degree of intensity that kind of goes through a solo and isn't modulated a whole lot. Occasionally on a ballad, he'll do some of the Ben Webster stuff and whatever. But I tend to think of him as kind of an intense, straightforward player getting work done. And on this particular album, which is from the '70s, so this is well into the third decade of his activity, he's getting work done. And it starts off with Autumn Leaves. And war horses talk about how much of a war horse Autumn Leaves is. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. man, that is one fucking war horse. <laughs> it's like the most played play jazz standard ever. And it's just kind of like, we're playing jazz, motherfucker. You know, it's nothing super surprising. The, the program gets more interesting after that. And it's the 70s, so you're going to have the rubber band bass. And I don't know, I, I don't think he's lost a step. He's still he's still a very fleet player, but I kind of like his earlier stuff better. I just feel like there's a little more breathing room somehow or a little more modulation than this one. But yeah, that's Johnny Griffin. And I, you know, I've got a couple of things by him, but he was not a guy that I got into deeply or collected. I've always treasured the stuff he did with Monk on Riverside, but and it's not that I don't like him. It's just that he's not somebody that kind of caught, captured my imagination. So anyway, that's Johnny Griffin. You said you mainly know him from Monk. Do you have other stuff by him, or is this? I, I do. I was looking over the discography and uh, just glancing because it's a big discography. Oh yeah. Um, I have early stuff, so I have introducing. I have a blowing session. Those are from '56 and '57. I have Johnny Griffin Sextet from '58, and then I might have Little Giant on Riverside from '59, and then there's a big gap. Yeah, yeah. Huge gap in the 60s. I don't have any of that Lockjaw Davis stuff. I might have the tenor scene. I might. I, I'm not sure. And then I, I have 
I have this date, Return of the Griffin. Is Blowing Session the one? He does this thing on Blue Note where he was going to do a duet album with Mobley, but he runs into Coltrane, drags him into it. And so it's Griffin, Coltrane, Mobley on like a four or five song session there. And there's just a hell of a lot of tenor. It is. It is. They've got a good uh, rhythm section on that. And it helps that Blakey's on drums. So, And it's kind of got a reputation for it. There was a period, certainly in my high school years, where I just kind of tired of the long string of solos, blue note approach. Right. Tenor, to make, tenor battle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've gotten to the point now where I feel like I've come around where I've heard so much of it that I can kind of, I, I feel like it, I can kind of rate it or enjoy it or, or understand it or unpack it for the nuances there, as opposed to looking for some a more interesting concept than, and now we shall play a string of solos. I still have problems sometimes with too much of that stuff in a row, the jam session style album. It just, it just, I, I kind of want a little more interesting programming or a little bit more interesting structure or whatever, but I've gotten to the point where at least is it, I can kind of every now and then really dig into it and say, well, this is a pretty good example of the kind, or this is so-so. And some people really seem to prize that recording. I, I've got a copy of it. I just have not spent a lot of time with it. And, it, and I guess superficially, it just sounds like yet another lots of tenors in a row blowing. So yeah, this, I don't know how you feel about it. I, I haven't gone back to some of these other recordings. I found myself warming to his earlier stuff a little bit more. But this yeah, is so really too. solid jazz. It's just it is. Do you what do you think about the sidemen? Do you have any impression of them besides the rubber band, the bass? Not I, the piano seems fine. I, I think my memory dimly is this was like a touring group that he was working with. It, oh really? This, okay. This is like roughly. Roughly the era of, of, we haven't talked about this, but Dexter Gordon's big comeback. Right. We did the Homecoming album quite a while back. And Griffin, too, had been an expatriate for a while, right? He was out of the country. Yes. So I, I don't think he made quite as big a splash when he came back to the States, but he was kind of of that generation and, and of that same experience of somebody who, who went to Europe to kind of get more recognition and, and better treatment and did not come back for a while. So Apparently he uh, lived and died his last years in, in uh, France, so... And supposedly was in the Netherlands. Obviously, he wasn't when this was recorded. I'm going to guess this was recorded in New York City. But yeah, he was one of those expatriates for a very long time. Yeah, and I guess looking at him compared to Dexter, in some ways, obviously, he's more technically impressive. Yeah. It's very fleet. At the same time, Dexter has this gift of injecting a very distinctive personality in what he does and a sense of humor and a kind of broadness. In, in There's Griffin's... a warmth and geniality yeah. to, uh, to Dexter that, that uh, Johnny's not warm and cuddly, you no. know, um, even when he plays ballads. Um, yeah, a little gruff, a little hard toned. Yeah, Autumn Leaves is a little harsh. This, <laughs> is not, this is not Ben Webster caressing the melody. And, and, it's a little brisker than that. Yeah, and you know, after Miles' treatments of it and everything, I just feel like that's one I, I I'm probably okay if I don't hear yet another version of that as long as I live. As much as I, it's a great song, but it's mm-hmm. just man, it's been flogged to death. Now some of the other stuff less so, but yeah, he is a little steely, a little yes. intense, and it's a great match for Monk. Monk likes yes technically proficient, aggressive tenor players. And he's always going to balance things out with his brilliant use of space and his humor. And Griffin thrives in that environment, and, and Monk mm-hmm. thrives with him. But yeah, here, there's, there's no real balancing force. And to be honest, I know that 
Eddie Lockjaw Davis is maybe not the player that Griffin is, but I kind of actually do like the chemistry they have. Uh, Fair enough. Uh, Davis is more of a kind of a bluesy, almost, he almost kind of gets sort of solely or funky at times. Yeah, yeah. And that softens some of the edges with Griffin, it seems to me. A little yeah. more I mean, romantic. Griffin is like as hard Bobby as it gets. You know? Yeah, emphasis on the hard. Yeah. Yes. It, really, if you look at Coltrane, who oddly as steely as Coltrane can get and is obsessive, also is a, one of the great ballad players of all time. Oh, yeah. He's got an aching sort of lyric romanticism. And that's those are just not words you use, right? Yeah. Johnny Griffin. The aching comes from you're just exhausted by the time he's done. You know, yeah. Um, he's a metal and it's kind of, guy. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how um, Monk seems to thrive with horn players who are a little less. Uh, I don't know how I want to put this. A little less thoughtful. Coltrane initially, when he played with Monk, was just out to fucking see. But he talked about how he was just like he didn't know what was going on and what he was supposed to be doing, and it was like he was just trying to fit his bag into all that and you get the sense that someone like johnny griffin i don't want to say he's a thoughtless player but he he just he he just he just did his thing and there wasn't this sense of introspection like well what should i be doing when i play with monk he just just plays you know oh yeah absolutely and and interestingly one of the tunes on this album is an original that is very much an homage to monk's style of composition and i think pretty good i I think it works pretty well what was it called like kind of monkish or Uh, a monk's dream a monk stream. Very, very. <laughs> That's so, about as monkey as you can get. There you go. I think that it's a mistake to dismiss jazz from a certain period, including the 70s. But you do feel like, with some exceptions, acoustic jazz at this moment in time is really searching for itself. Yeah. And a lot of these guys, as solid as an album this is, at some level, it's like you feel like it could have been made 10, 15, 20 years ago mm-hmm. and you might have liked it better. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like they haven't quite figured out. And, and the secret that the, the neo-boppers had, or the neoconservatives had, was they were just so damn young. It, it was new to them. You know, right. it was, in a sense, it was a discovery. Oh, my God, Miles Davis made this cool acoustic music with Wayne Shorter in 67. For them, this was just brand new, sparkling stuff. And so when they try to do it, there's a kind of energy behind it and naivete. When Griffin's doing it in the 70s, he's been doing it for a while. And, and you can, yes. you know, he, he's, it, it's a little rote, maybe. I, I don't want to be too dismissive, but yeah, it, it's not. The dew's off the rose here to some degree. I wouldn't start with Griffin here. Obviously, no, I yeah. You know, do the monk stuff for sure. You, you don't want to miss that. And then try Carrie Dance or whatever, or, or try some of the, the two tenor stuff. It, it, it's fine. One in each speaker, of course. And it, it's never going to kind of challenge you or freak you out or blow your mind, but it's okay. It, it's it's yeah, good solid meat and potatoes like, jazz. Uh, if you like hard bop, Johnny Griffin is your man. Right, but, but not, and this is something else I've been trying to think about He's there, but he doesn't quite have what I think of as those gestures. I guess at least I associate with Blue Note with a kind of a minor key songs. It's a little different from that, I guess, because he does come out of Bob. And so, yeah, he's definitely in that genre, but it's just got a little different feel than the average, I don't know, Joe Henderson or Horace Silver date. The repertoire is a little bit looking backwards, and it and, doesn't have that Blue Note house sound exactly. According to the Wikipedia page, he and Rudy Van Gelder kind of didn't get along. So ah, interesting. He left Blue Note very early, and all of his later recordings are Riverside and Prestige and stuff. Yeah, because Gelder certainly 
one accusation made against him is that he favors horn players acoustically over piano players and a lot of the albums they released you feel like they're getting the best of it you know they're they're brilliantly mic'd and they seem like they're in the room and then the piano players aren't doing so well but yeah maybe he just didn't like griffin's tone i, I or maybe it's his personality thing he's kind of an odd duck and i, I don't know that much about johnny he's a little giant but yeah i i don't know I'm trying to find out. So, yeah, I, I was just trying to find out how tall Johnny Griffin was because they call him Little Giant. Supposedly he was five foot five. All right. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't sound that short to me, but I guess when Dexter Gordon is towering over everyone, it's six, three or six well, foot. Well, you try to imagine Joyce holding a tenor saxophone. It looks a little odd. You know, she's five foot four, so he's an inch taller. Yeah, he, he's not the Tower of Power. He's a little giant. All right. All right. Well, where are we going next? Well, we got to do Scott Hamilton, Radio City. Why are you why are you laughing? He's got that little mustache and whenever you look at him he photographs he always looks like he's gotten away with something. He's got like a <laughs> sly look. Well, what, what I hate is when you Wikipedia you get the ice skater. It's always irritating. <laughs> Maybe it's the same guy. Probably. Not. Um I'm going to go out on a limb and say no. So anyway, yeah, this is one of those discoveries I made back in the e-music days because they just put up every goddamn Everything on the Concord label was available for a while on eMusic, and I must have seven or eight of his albums from that period. So like a fifth? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's gone on to record on other labels and and do a lot more, but I mean, I've I've got just a bunch of his albums from that that time, along with a bunch of other folks from, from from that period. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I picked up on him at first. And he's he's a real easy transition. If you like older swing styles, he's the real easy guy to sort of get into, you know, because you listen to me like, I know what this is. This is very familiar. Right. Uh, yeah, he's I, I like him. I like him quite a bit. I don't know how you feel about him, but I don't know how you feel about this date. But uh, I like this quite a bit. So what are your reactions when you heard this? Well, Hamilton, the story behind him is that he appears in the 70s and he's playing kind of pre-war jazz, right? It's it's swing style. And looks like I was looking up his birthday. So he's born in 54. So he's no longer a kid, but he was kind of at that time, very young and playing. It was sort of like a generation before the neoconservatives, both in terms of when he came to prominence and also his musical models. So they were looking at stuff from the 50s and 60s. He's looking at models really from the 30s. And he's just really damn good at it. But is this weird sense of here's somebody that that is playing. And, And it's weird because if we think of the commonly accepted jazz language, it's still kind of rooted in 50s and 60s models. And if you do fusion like Snarky Puppy or whatever, that's commented on because largely we've tried to forget the 80s, the 70s. And if you do music before the the 40s or the 50s and 60s, it's commented on too. I mean, it's a sense like modern jazz. I think we tend to think of it as those decades. And then it really doesn't, you know, there's, there's avant-garde, there's other styles. But if you just want to say the average jazz being played on an average Thursday night in the average club, 
such as still exist, it's going to be rooted in those styles, right? It's going to be 50s and 60s jazz. And so yeah, and even yeah. in the 70s, yeah, very much, right? Blue Note stuff, maybe some Impulse if they're more adventuresome, but that's kind of considered the salad days for the music. And he looks in the 70s before that for models. And this album is like a really good swing album with unusually high recording quality uh, from, I don't know, the 30s. And he's a damn fine player. I mean, his lines are good. They're well thought out. They're distinctive, full of melodic ideas. He's, he's quite technically adept. He's good at what he does, but he's playing in a style that seems quote-unquote old-fashioned, even though, as I said, if you think about the models that still apply to jazz today, they're 56 years old at this point. But somehow that's modernity, and this is pre-modernity. So I liked it. It was fun. Again, we've got yet another Yahweh, right? Another guy that seems to know exactly Mm -hmm. who he is, what his values are, how he wants to play doesn't seem to be self-questioning, doesn't seem to be somebody who's developing a lot over time, as Bryant was, as Griffin was, just somebody who kind of finds himself early on and plays in that mode steadily for, again, his career has now gone on for decades. So just as Griffin kept staying the course of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, Hamilton has through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the millennium. I, you know, this the, particular uh, the, album, I don't. Is this one of your favorites, or did it just come up, or is it a new acquisition? I, it, ju- I just got it. Okay. I, again, I scour the library sales so every time I go to the library. I go to the library once a week, and um, they always have CDs out, and there this was, you know. And I'm like, okay, that's an easy call. I'm at, I'm at the point where I'll pick up anything by Scott Hamilton when I see it. So this album kind of signals its allegiances with the cover, which is an old-timey radio from the 40s or the 30s, right? I mean, it sort of tells you this is our music, right? It's sort of he's planting his flag very firmly. And this is recorded in 1990. Yeah. He's he's not part of the Marsalis neoconservative movement. He doesn't have those those allies. At least I'm not aware of that. There's no, to to my knowledge, no cross-pollination between him and those folks, this is just what he does. You get the sense of like, he's like, this is what I like. This is what I'm good at. This is what I'm going to play. To me, especially on this album, he's very much in a kind of Ben Webster mold. When he gets on a ballad, man, you can hear the air coming through the horn. Very breathy. Perhaps not as languorous maybe as Ben Webster gets, but he's caressing the melody and, and he's definitely in that style. But he also has, the other person he's compared to a lot is Coleman Hawkins, right? And he, he also has that kind of tough, tough-mindedness that you can hear on some of the numbers here as well. Like he can do both things. I have not heard his more recent recording, so I don't know what he's gotten up to in recent years, but I'd be very interested to hear what he's done. Apparently, he's been doing a lot of recording in Europe. It would be interesting to hear how that has altered or changed his style, if at all, um, if he's grown and found more of his own thing. You know, the Wikipedia page wants to say that at a certain point, he found his own sound. I, I, to me, I, I'm not sure I hear it so much. It sounds like he he's just... I don't want to say that he's imitative. I don't think that's quite right. But he's very comfortable in this idiom from the 30s and the 40s. And he does it as well as anybody. So I don't know. I I like this quite a bit. If you like older swing stuff and you want to hear someone contemporary who does that, this is your man. This is the guy to go to. He's he's very consistent across his records. Um, He's always good. And sometimes he's he's quite good. I like his Organic Duke album quite a bit. Um, and there's a couple others that I think are worth singling out in his discography that I'm aware of. But he's someone who I'd like to know 
more about and hear more about. And when I got this, uh, I wasn't disappointed. It was another really solid outing from him, it seemed to me. Did you like this or no? I did. I get the sense, and I have not collected the guy, but, but that he makes all these records, just dozens of them, and that probably every one of them is three and a half stars. And yep. then every now and then you might have one that's especially good, but it's it's kind of a series of sustained goodness. And in the very nature of it, it it's this weird thing. So just to compare, he is born in 54. Johnny Griffin is born in 1928. And Griffin would not be caught dead sounding the way Hamilton does, right? It, it's Exactly. He is utterly committed to a style of music that comes after what Hamilton does. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean it's better or it's more developed. It's different, but it is decidedly, he is, his roots are in bop and hard bop. And Hamilton is just not interested in those idioms. So there's this weird sense that he's a very talented player. He's good at what he does. At the same time, he's going back to where the ground has been laid out. The paths, people have macheted them clean long ago. And so when he's playing these tunes that are mostly familiar tunes in a style that was kind of staked out by Webster and Hawkins and to some degree Lester Young, though he's not really in that cool school, it's both very well done, it's pleasing, and at the same time you're like, but what is he bringing to the table here other than this it's a little it's the hardest thing i think to judge because you're literally asking yourself okay this is all super familiar this has all been done is he just good at it can i detect is he better at it than i don't know some of the people back from the 30s is is there something about him that just you know that he you can see he's a master craftsman but it is a kind of craftsmanship right it's it's doing things that have been done before very well but even in, in repertoire, it's not like he's going to do Duran Duran songs in a swing style or whatever. You know, it's it's he's doing well-known tunes from that era in a well-known style, which you know, Concord is kind of a label known for digging up performers that maybe had their heyday in the 30s and rediscovering them and finding younger players who kind of are familiar with and comfortable in that earlier idiom. I tend to think of a lot of Concord's music is being pre-bop in its orientation, right. even though the label's more prolific in the 70s and 80s and 90s. It's not It's it's not lined up that way. So I, I did enjoy it. But again, it's just one of these albums that you, you listen to and it's like, well, there it is. Yep, he is what he is. He eats his spinach every day and beats up Bluto. It, it's, it's almost impervious to comment. Either you're upset by the fact that he is redoing music that's quote-unquote old, or you accept it. I accept it. It's fine. But But... A little bit like uh, Bob Will is it Bob Wilbur, the the soprano saxophone player on the Soprano yeah. Summit, right? Yeah. Though I I do feel like there's maybe a little more edge and urgency to some of what that some of that music than than I always get here. But damn, he's again he's got the nuance, he's got the he's got the curveball stuff, he's he's got the expressivity and, and and the little flourishes and touches that gives the music life in this idiom, and. You know, when he gets a burner, he burns. He, he he gets along with it. It's just this weird thing where, you know, your hot player in the swing era seemed to be have been made obsolete by Charlie Parker, right? He's mm-hmm. he's now doing things. He's doing the triple lutz, and, and you were just doing the single or whatever. It's just like, wow. And I think that was kind of a short-sighted point of view. But, yeah, you hear these things, and it's like, amazing, but, you know, I've heard Steve Coleman. I've heard Coltrane. I've heard whoever who's pushed the music so hard. To come back to it, it's just a little odd. But it's a good album, yeah. Um, you might, uh, like I said, I like Organic Duke, maybe the best of uh, okay. the things of him by I have, that I have by him. As you might expect, he will. He has a handful of dates where he 
has someone from an earlier generation who plays with and the suspects are exactly who you might expect right so he's got a date with ruby braff oh uh, he's yeah got, he's got a date with jerry mulligan which you can only imagine what that's going to be like it's called soft lights and sweet music so there you go but his first recording date was with bob wilbur Ah, okay. So maybe I've got that. The flag, very first album. Yeah, you know? he seems like when he came out in his twenties, fully formed, absolutely committed to this kind of music, and very comfortable with it. He was—he's not somebody. And you'll see some pop bands do it. You'll see some jazz musicians do it, where they're kind of trying out different personas. Yes, Tori Amos, the pop singer, was in a kind of a punk band called Why Can't Tori Read, right? You know, she's she's like, I've got musical yeah. talent. I want to make my name. I'm going to try this way. It didn't work. I'll try that way. You know, and, and you find yourself. He just seems to have known this is what I want to do and started doing it in, in probably the least friendly environment possible, which would be the late 70s. And then kept doing it and doing it. And I, I and do like feel I like said, it's good. Yeah. Not part of that. Not part of that neoconservative right, no. movement. I don't think he plants a well, flag. You know, and it's in weird. The sense be- of this is this is it's not a it's not a it's not an ideological programmatic. It's just this is what I do. I've never read anything by him where he sort. Yeah. Well, and he's everything pers- after '62 is garbage. Because right. the neoconservatives, I mean, they begin with if, if you're looking at Winton, second right. Miles Quintet, late '60s right. acoustic jazz, and then. They kind of leap back. I mean, went and goes back to models that really almost predate or are a different stream swing, yeah. from swing. Yeah. You know, Ellington yeah. is his own world and Jelly Roll Morton and all this stuff. And yeah, I don't know that the 30s jazz is, is ever quite on their radar. That's not their part of their program. And you do feel like to some degree, I feel like a lot of especially white players in the EDM, there was always a sense that you're getting away with something. Uh, I can't remember the banjo player's name who was, we called it music. I, this is a guy that read on these jam sessions. He wasn't a great player, but he was one of the guys that was an organizer in the music and kept doing it for decades and decades. Or Pee Wee Russell or whoever, uh, Bud Freeman's in this group. And, you know, I love Bud. Just, it was kind of, it, it represented a kind of rebellion and a freedom for that generation of players. And then, of course, Jazz kept going and, and demanding different things. And at some level, I, I think guys are really committed to that 30s sound, feel like the jazz was, uh, I'm, let me try again, this fun was sapped out of it, right? That Parker was a little too technical, a little too serious, a little too heavy, and a little too difficult. And it's a lot more fun to jam on Honeysuckle Rose, right? It just kind of mm-hmm. fits into your fingers. And what the hell, let's do that again. And so, yeah, he he's always got a little smirk going. He's, he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm getting away with this. This is, this is fun. I know what I'm up to here. And again, I, I don't, again, he's a fine player. He is, he's good at what he does. It's good stuff. I don't feel like this is a pale Xerox of that music. It's just kind of odd, right? You're listening to it. It's like a little, well, what's yeah. going on here? And there doesn't seem to be an agenda. It's just, I like to play like this. It, he doesn't have, a huge conceptual apparatus behind him. As you said, he's just kind of, kind of playing. Maybe in private, you know, he's, you know, fusion, but like I said, you've never seen him or read about him. Look at letters to the New York times from him. Uh, Yeah. Yes, absolutely. He was not an idea. If he feels that way, he's keeping it to himself. That's right. Right next to his flask. Right next to his flask. Absolutely. All right. That's a grand tradition of thirties musicians. It's like, we don't need heroin. We've got alcohol. The man's drug. There you go. (laughs) <laughs> All right, now we've, we've, so we've done three I Am What I Am artists, and now we're going to the Joker in the pack. Boy, this is, say his name again for me, because you're just going to laugh if I say it. Really? 
really, okay. Avishai. It's not that hard. Avishai. You can say this. Avishai Cohen. Avishai, Yuvishai. Avishai. Shut up. Avishai. Avishai. It's not hard. Stop that. Stop that. Okay. Avishai Cohen. And, he's um, and you player? must have, yeah, you must have three or four of his albums, don't you? I think you have the same ones I have, don't you? No, I, I've got Continuum. Continuum is oh. the only one I've got that I'm aware of. I, 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 none else. If I've got other ones, the name was okay. misspelled. I, <laughs> I can't find <laughs> Okay. Very no, I've got, uh, this is uh, an adi- I didn't realize I had as much of him as I have. I have four wow, or five okay. of his CDs at this point. So yeah, I've got Colors Continuo. I know I have Adama, even though it's not on my list. I know I have it somewhere. And he's a bass player. And who did he come up? with? was it? Was it? He came up with. Yeah, I mean, he's he studied with a few people, but yeah, he made his mark in uh, Origin, Chick Corea's Origin. Okay, and this is one of those uh, kind of portfolio albums, isn't it? It's yep. fairly early in his career, and. It's all over the damn map. It is. He's he's gonna show you everything he can do, and he can do a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a whole bunch. There's fusion on here. There's third stream. There's some vocals. There's some rock. Yeah, it's a and and there's there's a weird five second song called Igor. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. To me, the, the the signal. So we should actually mention who's on this album because it's a big band. Um, so this is Cohen Devotion, right? Yeah, Devotion yes. by. And it, what year was it? Nineteen ninety nine. Okay. This is his second album. Uh, his first album was Adama, and Colors follows. So yeah, he plays acoustic and electric here. He plays uh, piano on a handful of numbers, some synthesizer and percussion. You can imagine what those numbers are. Jason Lindner is on piano, and I think he was the pianist on uh, Black Star. I think I have that right. Jimmy Green on tenor, flute, he plays reeds. Uh, Steve Davis on trombone, Ames Hoffman on guitar, and Oud, your favorite instrument. And the uh, it signals to me what kind of uh, date this is going to be. Jeff Ballard is the drummer. Jeff Ballard uh, is the drummer for the um, Brad Meldau trio now. And ever since Ballard kind of arrived in Meldau's trio, it's had a sort of rockier, punchier edge. Right, and he I used think it, yeah. Things yeah, he, he brings that to the table here, too. He, can, he obviously is... Uh, a great jazz drummer, but he, he can he can punch it up when required. And on this date, it's required from time to time. What do you think of this? Did you like this? Do you want to hear more Avishai after having heard this or what? Yeah, I, this one was by far the hardest to get any kind of fix on, right? After, as I said, we, we've got a set of three very distinctive, very unified, focused people who have just, you know, fingerprints and they stick to them and they know what they want to do. This was a little hard to follow just because depending on when I come in on it, it's like, what album am I listening to? It's like a great bunch of albums, mm-hmm. just like Stan Getz was a great bunch of guys. And I enjoyed it moment by moment. I don't know that as I listen to it in the phones that given that it's a bass player's album, he certainly gets featured a lot. I don't know that they're quite recording him as well as they might have. I feel like when he's playing acoustic, the sound's okay, but he's not quite getting as much love from the engineers as he probably deserved given he's running the show. Again, it's not like I listen to a song on this and think, yeah, I can stand that. I'm going to kick that out of bed. It's just that listening to it, it, it's a little hard to know what he's about or what he's after. 
He's just doing a lot of different genres and a lot of different approaches. And I don't know that the songwriting is always functional, but I don't know that it's it, it's stunning. And the soloing and the, the playing is, is very fine. But again, I don't know that I hear solos here that I get that sense of musicians being energized by their contacts to play above their heads. They're not having their best day ever. They're having damn good solid days. But I don't know that anything leapt out at me either conceptually melodically or in terms of just a solo that was taking my head off but it's all very well done it's all very solid it's just there's a lot of different opportunities or, or flavors it's a buffet right yeah it's, um, it's super unpredictable you're not gonna it's really hard to you can put this on mix and it kind of doesn't matter because the right. programming is so idiosyncratic from from number to number that it doesn't it doesn't have like a through narrative you're right i really do feel like this is kind of a buffet or smorgasbord like here are some things i can do i didn't feel like this probably will piss off whatever whoever the producer was for this but it doesn't feel like there's a narrative right like you have to listen to these in this order i don't feel like you have to listen to these in this order it's here's a bunch of things that avishai can do and he can do a lot yeah, um, but it's not like the Ray Bryant date where you have a sense of here's where we're going. Right. Um, yeah. I'm in control here. Um, what Ray likes, what he does. Yeah. Yeah. It, this is more like here's a bunch of things I like. And that you kind of get that right from the very beginning, because the first two songs, I think all of these, yeah, they all are Cohen compositions. The first two songs are tributes to piano players who he greatly admires. El Capitan and the Ship at Sea is for Horace Silver. Oh, OK. And the very different the gift is for Chick Corea. And that kind of tells you right there, here, here's where we're going, right? And, and those two songs are pretty fucking different. Um, yeah, El Capitan is really modern mainstream jazz, right? It, it's, yeah. And it sets up a set of expectations that immediately get bowled over by the next tune. And yeah, I don't know. I, the, the difficulty has been really all, going all the way back to like Herbie Hancock is that after the first couple waves of musicians in jazz, education got to the point where they're producing these amazingly flexible, technically proficient, talented musicians that just could do a lot of different things. And then the question becomes, well, you can do X, Y, and Z, but what do you want or need to do? And, and what am I supposed to care about among the things that you can do that, that I'm going to say, I go to this person for that reason or for the, that set of reasons. And yeah, you listen to this and it's like, man, he's a good bass player. He'd be fine on any number of sessions. But as a leader... The question becomes, well, what, what, where is he leading us? You know, what's, what is he trying to accomplish here? What's he putting a flag in the sand in, in honor of? What, what does he think is urgent for us to hear? And a lot of different things, right? It, it, it's, you know, I, I like the record, but I don't, I don't know that I, I come away wanting to get more of his stuff because I'm not quite sure what that would mean other than well-played bass and any number of genres that, that, that are available. Yeah, and I haven't, you know, there, there's some signal here, and this becomes a thing on his later albums. He's, he's an Israeli, and he signals with his composition titles on other albums some of his interest in paying homage to, to that heritage. You don't get very much of that here. Um, right. Just a song or two. It's more like he's signaling on this album, here's things in the tradition that I, that I like. Um, or here's things in the tradition that I that I care about. So there's a fair amount of Latinish or, or Latin tinged, Spanish tinged stuff here. I don't know how you felt about it, but I actually liked the use of the vocalists here because most of the time I didn't have to pay too much attention to them. There's a uh, four or five numbers here with vocal background or there's, yeah, there's right. singing. 
Yeah, not overwhelming, though. It's not focused on it. Exactly. Yeah, they're kind of counterpoint to the music that's going on, and I I kind of enjoyed that. It often felt like a change of pace here. There's a couple of um, just bass numbers, and uh, that those two felt like interesting kind of workouts. This feels like one of those albums they used to do on Blue Note, you know, introducing so-and-so. Right. Sort of feels like introducing Avishai Cohen. Here's some stuff. Here's some things. But it would have been a lot more tightly tied down yeah, focused. Yeah, forced right. like, you know, Absolutely. You can introduce yourself, but you have to introduce yourself in the following way. Whereas this is sort of like, here's just a whole bunch of different kinds of music, kinds of things that I'm interested oh. in doing. Yeah. So there's some long form stuff on here and there's some short form stuff. Um, when I say long form, I mean pieces that are seven minutes long and then a lot of like two minute songs, three minute songs. So it's pretty brisk for the most part. It moves right along. But yeah, if you had to say on the basis of hearing this, here's what I think the shape of Cohen's career or the shape of what he's interested in will be, you would be very hard pressed to do that on the basis of this album. Yeah, right. And that's the sense that, that it, it's somebody with a lot of talent, but an amorphous identity. And right. nothing wrong with that. But but and, and the other one I do have is much more of a piece. I, I was reading a couple reviews of it. Can um, what is it called? Continuo. Yes. Something like that. And it was interesting because some people just thought the album was very solid, and then others hated it. Just thought it was right. a dead end. But that was a record where the ethnic strains are more pronounced and. Yes. It's almost, it's not one continuous song, but it, it is really focused. And you almost wonder, it comes later in his career, if it was almost a response to complaints that his earlier stuff had been a little too eclectic. But yeah, this is a record that, again, was enjoyable, but I, I don't know at the end of it, I, I felt like I had a brief for whether or not I wanted to pursue his stuff further. It was just kind of like, wow, yeah, he can he can do a lot of things. Like the percussion, there's cool percolating yes. percussion on it all over the place and as i said his, his, his bass sound was fine but maybe a little thin and again it just didn't seem to be given the tender loving care you'd assume it would receive as a lead instrument so yeah i, I don't know how i feel about the guy from this record and, and really continue I, I kind of have mixed feelings about so i'm not sure this is somebody i'm, I'm going to track down more of unless you just find a gem you say you gotta you gotta hear this pat but Again, it's, it's not that it's a bad... This is a problem with jazz. Is there are just thousands of great albums or really super solid albums made every year, right? There's just people have got to a level of proficiency where there's an awful lot of things out there that are at least kind of three-star efforts. And then the question is, well, what matters to you? What are you going to connect to? What do you care about? Who's somebody that you want to spend time with, which is our obviously most limited resource and gets more limited every day? I don't know. I mean, he's not somebody that's necessarily captured my imagination but at the same time he's a good musician you know this is this is uh, not negligible work yeah i i get the sense a little bit with him that at least on these first few albums adama devotion and colors he's using this these are mostly the same players mm, so okay. he keeps the out he keeps the piano um ballard is the drummer you know this this is kind of a working group initially and then later he shifts more to the trio format and i don't know you know, I haven't I haven't listened to those records, so I couldn't talk about whether or not that's I couldn't talk about the shape of his career on the basis of that. But there does, you know, these three albums do seem to go together in the sense that he's working with a similar kind of set of musicians. Uh, he's working with a similar kind of uh, instrumentation. 
So if, if the shift to trio is, is a retrenchment or branching out in a new direction, I, I, I kind of want to hear that music and see what he gets up to when he's kind of scaled it back to just a trio. Because this is really almost chamber jazz in a way, right? He's got yeah. enough voices. He's got enough instrumentation here that he can get up to kind of, you know, a Mediterranean thing sometimes. And he kind of does a Latin thing. And then he can do a Caribbean thing. He, he can do a lot of different kinds of things here. But I don't have a sense of him. And I wonder if this trio dates later, the more recent stuff, he's kind of got a different identity or boiled his music down. He's someone who I'd be interested in checking out, see what he's gotten up to since. Yeah, he'd almost have to, right? Because he doesn't have all these different voices. And, and the the reed player, does. there's a fair amount of flute on this album. Yep. And I, I feel like a, maybe a little clarinet, unless I'm just crazy. Uh, maybe uh, that opening sure. number, but but maybe I'm maybe I'm nuts. But 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 yeah, the point being that he's got large enough forces that he can really change the whole texture and idiom from song to song. And yeah, you know, with the trio, you kind of have to think more about repertoire and more about your structural procedures because you've got so few voices that you can't kind of throw a new color out to distract the listener with every song. You can't have different mini ensembles within the larger group. You can't bring an electric guitar for rock textures versus an oud for a more ethnic texture, whatever you want to call that. So yeah, I'd be curious to hear them in, in that setting. You know. Yeah, and it turns out, I mean, I didn't realize this, but now I'm just sort of looking it up. It turns out that Steve Davis, his, so his initial recording, he basically is using Origin, right? He's got Steve Davis and Steve Wilson, both of whom were Origin members, um, on the, okay. on that date, on the, the previous album to this. And he actually records, you know, ballads on that date as well. And I think the guitarist is also the same. Yeah, he's got the same guitarist. So it's sort of like his first date is he's sort of picking up where Origin left off almost. I mean, Chick Corea actually appears on that album, so does Brad Meldow. And then on this, on Devotion, his second date, he's still got the same forces that he's marshalling. So it's kind of a development of, of that sound. And now it kind of makes me want to go back to Origin and listen to that sextet and, and hear that again and, and see maybe where he's coming from a little more clearly. In other words, listen to it not so much for Chick Corea, but to think about how is this going to shape what Cohen gets up to in his next couple of albums. And it's only after these first three albums that he starts to change personnel and, and get into his own thing. Interesting way of thinking about what he gets up to. I guess a fairly young guy, and, and Korea is certainly a very distinctive and powerful musical personality, so it makes sense that he begins in that orbit and then slowly maybe finds something new. All right. Well, anything on your mind concerning pop? Not really. I listened to the Scott Walker stuff, which uh, I really like. I think I prefer the second one to the first to the fourth one. What's the one where it's it's the song about an asshole or something? What is that? That doesn't narrow it down much for Scott Walker. <laughs> no, he's got a song where he talks about you know like some asshole in the sun or something. I forget. I I, I just it's I only I've only listened to it once, but I thought it was terrific. I do like those early Scott Walkers a lot. They're a lot of fun. The most recent thing I've listened to, and you'll just laugh at me, um, 
a variety of things, but the one that sort of stuck in my head helped me is Out of the Blue by Electric Light Orchestra. Just <laughs> fucking Jeff Lynne. I mean, the motherfucker can write a hook. He just, you know, and the problem is those little earworms just stick with you. <laughs> just get in there and they won't let go. <laughs> fucking wall-to-wall sound production. I don't know. Anyway, it's he's he's so talented and annoying at the same time it's really kind of astonishing what have you been listening to i think i may have found the album that you will hate the most in the universe it's got all the elements of things i listen to that you don't like in one place so So wait wait let me let me add them up let's see annoying precious female vocalist yes yes check uh, let's see. What other things do I hate? Well, you decided uh, you didn't like the Cocktail Twins much. There's some hint of their production style. But but let me let me raise the stakes. <laughs> How about all sung in Welsh? That's right. Oh yeah. Boy. Uh, That's so, irritating. So some group called Nine Bach, number nine B A C H, and the Society Bowers and Wilkins, which is an audio company. There's this little club you can join called their Society of Sound, and every month. They'll give you a download, typically of symphonic music and then pop. And a lot of the times they don't like the pop. This is this weird, it's like, this is a woman that's pushed Welsh singing into the 19th century or something. Uh, So it's like some folk music, but also some cocktail twins and electronic touches to it. And she's, yeah, this, this drifting ethereal female voice often stacked into multiple harmonies. And it's just kind of, good music to sip white wine to but i i, I, I might i might like it. it i might like it you it's might. possible or you might hate it's it possible. but but it, it, it's fun and it's something because it's always a crapshoot some of the stuff they have and it's weird because it's like if i don't like pop jazz i always feel like okay here's an album i don't like that much but i'm learning from it it's going to go into pat's library of examples and pop music i don't like i'm like fuck that my life is too short to deal with stuff i just don't want to do you know i don't want to think about this it doesn't speak to me get rid of it and some of their stuff really falls into the fuck that category but this is like hey this is this is great i this is fine music to fall asleep to i think it's really 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 pretty and i don't know what it's about which probably helps a lot because my guess is if i knew what the words meant right, i was like, drifting into up talk again stop it okay so the other thing i did <laughs> i've got Wait, a, so that reminds me of so let me let me chime in real quick that yeah. reminds me of something which i think i should send you on the basis of that description when I used to uh, stop in Chicago before, for a long time, I, f- I didn't have family there, uh, and now I do. So, but when I didn't, I stayed with these two friends in Hyde Park, bachelors my age, and the one of them would always wake up the other with this Finnish vocal group. No, <laughs> no, no, no music or no, no acapella. No, just, it's just, acapella. Yeah, voices, yeah. Finnish women. And it sounded like yodeling on acid. I mean, and this was his morning music. He would, it was just got him going in the morning. So I got this. I, I didn't get that, although I wish I had that just to torture you with. I got this uh, classical disc some time ago. I think I told you about it, maybe, called Roomful of Teeth, which is, again, one of these chamber classic grooves. They're a vocal ensemble out of probably Brooklyn. And they're really cool. They remind me of what you were saying just now, except they're all a cappella. And sometimes they sound they sound kind of they they perform new compositions that have been done for them. So oftentimes, so I think there's nine of them, male and female. And sometimes they sound like you listen to it and you think, oh, this sort of sounds like a Bach cantata. And then and then the growling starts, or the yelping, or the dee dee da dee dee da. Just you know, it's really, really kind of it's always 
vocally interesting, but sometimes you're asking yourself, are my teeth on edge or am I my happy place? I'm right in between. I can't quite tell. So. Yeah. See, this is all about soothing. This night oh, lock is... Okay. Well, if you send me this, I'll hook you up with a okay. full of teeth. <laughs> And so the other weird experience, looking way, way back, this is a brand new release. In fact, I'm not quite sure it's been released yet other than through the Society of Sound. I have a USB port on my car, and so I'll fill it up with music. And somehow I screwed things up, so in one folder I had Steve Earle's Copperhead Road and squeezes, yeah. and squeezes Archie Bargy. <laughs> And so Those of course not, they do not play well together. They don't. And so I'm going back and forth, you know, cause it'll be track one of one and then track one of the other and back and forth. Oh uh, dear. Copperhead road was an album that was on heavy rotation and WXRT in Chicago in the early nineties. And that's a tale of two sides. Boy, the first side I love to death. Pogues are on one of the tunes. There, there's yeah. a lot of rock energy, a lot of dripping sarcasm. His voice is, I can't imagine acquiring the taste for it, but I guess if oh, you were I've, ever going to get it. Oh, I've got it. I just, that, I did not uh, listen to that when draw. it came out, but about six years ago, I got it. And yeah, I, I would be an Earl completist if I could. I like his voice. I like the snarl. I like the young Steve Earl doesn't give a fuck. Young Steve Earl is still on drugs and, you know, doing bad stuff. And Copperhead Road is from like badass Steve Earl before he kind of gets religion and fat and grows a long, scary Moses beard. But when he's young, he's the scary motherfucker. Copperhead Road is like a fuck you album. I love, it is. I, what, what I love is, that. The first half is. And then the second half is a lot more sentimental, and a lot more country. And then Squeeze RG Bargy, a group that probably all you need is the singles. Yep. But, but That's it. That's all you need. Well, but I would say this record is the only one I've got. There are a few tunes on it that are not on singles that I really like, and overall, it's really strong. It, boy, that's a group that, if they didn't exist, no one would miss them, but, but, but <laughs> you know, this is like, they recall the, the Lennon-McCartney of their time, which is ridiculous, but there are a couple songs where I do feel like, and my favorite by far is Pulling Muscles from a Shell, which I guess is a sexual reference. But, you think? <laughs> you think? But... I just feel like that song reaches a kind of greatness because I just feel like most of it is literally just, this is what you see if you go to a working class beach. This is just, these are the things that happen. And there's a great music going with it. And it's just kind of like, you're just having this moment of, this is this thing, here it is. And that kind of song, there's a kind of transcendence to it. It's like, you're just an eye and you're seeing these things and there's a little sarcasm, a little wit and whatever, but, and they're kind of, I don't know, dirty minded. They're just, they're really obsessed with sex and puns. They make Elvis Costello look They're British. What do you expect? They are. They are. English. I mean, come on. And that concludes episode 89 of the Jazz Bastard podcast. You can download the podcast from www.jazzbastard.com or from iTunes. You can contact us at mike at jazzbaster.com or pat at jazzbaster.com. You know, the next episode we're going to do was inspired by an email, so you too can direct the course of this fine podcast, because we're easy. Tune in next time as we do an all Wenton Marcellus episode, Wenton, 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 the early years, in which we'll discuss his debut, Black Codes from the Underground, Standard Time Volume 1, and Life at Blues Alley. Until then, I'm Neoclassically Yours. Take care. <laughs>